Hello everybody, I'm Alex Sion, founder of Mars Space, and I will be your host today in Life on Mars. And today's episode, we talk to Ingrid Odegaard from the Norwegian company, well, founder of the Norwegian company Whereby, previously known as Appear.in, one web platform for video conferencing, one of the ones that caught our eye in back in 2014 when we were starting the company as a remote and officeless company. It was originally the platform where we hosted our first conferences and our first video calls. And and it was also developed in Angular, which was one of the technologies that we worked with back then. So we reached out to them and we kind of like didn't maintain too much contact over the years, but we exchanged a few emails regarding technology, regarding uh, regarding some development insights, and uh, we wrote about them on our blog and whatnot. And so, you know, after a few years, I was like, I should get these people to speak in the podcast. They sound like great people. A few years back, they raised a, a big round uh, throughout the pandemic. They kind of like pivoted their model. They rebranded from Appear.in to Whereby. It's just a really cool product now. Uh, it was back then as well, but it's even cooler now. But Ingrid transitioned from being the CTO and co-founder at Whereby to leading product in, in the Riot, which is a company that we also will be talking towards the end of the episode about. So in this episode, we speak about technology. We speak about their tech stack. Why did they choose Angular, how did they rewrite all of their application from an Angular tech stack note plus Angular to using a React application? When did that happen? How much did that cost? How did they do it with the rebranding, which is also a very cumbersome and tiresome pro- process? Um, we talk about attracting talent, diversity in the teams. Uh, being a player from the Norwegian ecosystem, which is not a kind of not the ecosystem that we talk about every day, at least in in this podcast, of course. And maybe there are much more, you know, people know that region much more for their Swedish neighbors, and and most of the startup uh, ecosystem unicorns come from from Sweden, not so much from from Norway, but they have also really really interesting companies there. We talk a fair amount about technology, but also about community, because one of the things that they do in the new company uh, where she's joined in the Riot, it is an all-in-one solution for community builders to kind of like uh, nurture and cultivate their community uh, with technology. So we will also be talking about that. This is a very great conversation where we intersect Technology and business this is something that we like doing here. And of course, we uh, we continue the tradition of interviewing companies we like and companies that have been mostly bootstrapped. So keep an eye on this conversation because I'm pretty sure that there will be part two uh, coming soon. So without further ado, let's jump right into this episode. Ingrid, good morning. Welcome to the show. Welcome to Live on Mars. How are you doing? Hey, Alex. Great to meet you. Happy to be here. Um, just to give some context to the audience, uh, we exchanged some emails back in 2014. I think, uh, I don't know if you were starting your company or not, but definitely appear.in, that was the name of Whereby back then, uh, was our tool of choice when we started MarsBase as a remote-only company. And uh, we decided that Google Meet or Hangouts or Google Chat, whatever it was called back then, was not good enough for our uh, vehicles. And word of mouth brought us to use your product. Right, and so we exchanged some emails back then because we mentioned you in blog posts. You saw it, then I don't know for whatever reason we talked about technology as well. You guys were struggling with Angular, but anyways, um, what, what what was the stage of the company at that time? Uh, give us a little bit of context uh, as to where how did you start the company? So it's really funny to meet you, kind of in person now, <laughs> and and really fun to to uh, talk to someone who's been following the product for so long. So I think that was probably in the first year. After we started, and uh, our product kind of had a really funny start because it was is it was actually an intern project, a summer project. So the wow. first pro- prototype that we launched was uh, was a very crude prototype. But then from very early on, we started gathering user feedback and uh, started pretending that we were a startup, even though we were actually a corporate startup inside a bigger company. Um, but people really took to the product because at that time, uh, video conferencing was crap. So we had this vision that we actually want to have make people like having video calls and, and then do it more. We were also a remote team at the time. So um, we started reaching out to users like you that we saw were using the product actively to kind of understand what they liked about it, what they were missing, and kind of let that drive the product development. 
So I think that's where we were in 2014. We had probably built out the basic first version of the product and, and we're kind of iterating to really figure out who <laughs> should it be for and, and what should we prioritize in our product uh, roadmap. Yeah, before Zoom, actually, so 2014, it was kind of like you were either using WebEx or something like that, or you were not a serious company, right? If you were yeah. you're not using HP, Cisco, all of these kind of softwares. However, on the other hand, using a peer.in, I remember that you had the private rooms, right? And I remember we had a peer.in slash Marsbase, and people were like, oh, wow, that's cool. And perhaps because people didn't know it very well here, it was still not common around Spain, they thought there was something that we developed, maybe, I don't know. Uh, and so people are like started spreading the word of mouth about the product, right? So um, did this occur uh, organically, actually, yeah. the word of yeah. mouth distribution? Yeah. And and in the first four months, so we launched the, the first intern prototype in August 2013. And within four months of that, the product spread organically to more than wow. 175 countries. And oh, wow. Didn't really do any marketing apart from kind of uh, social media. And it was basically me and like five developers. So we just kind of engaged with users and users spread it because they really liked it and, and turned into ambassadors. So um, at that time, I think it was really a big need for people because if you were to have a 15-minute stand-up, you would spend 15 minutes getting everyone in exactly. the call. Because exactly. it was so much or fun. installing, downloading a client, whatever, right? Yeah. So. And I think our, our solution, which is quite unique still, really, it's kind of rooms-based instead of user-based. And you have these rooms that are permanent and people can drop in and out of them. And you don't have to create a new URL for every meeting. So removing the step of going via the calendar. Uh, so for daily stand-ups, it's amazing. You can just have a team room and everyone drops into that at 11. Yeah. Um, I, re I remember that one of the first things we, we noticed is like, oh, no registration needed? What the? Yeah, you know, yeah. it was pretty disruptive back then because everybody yeah. wanted your data. Everybody wanted to download exactly. their And we still have that. that. For guests, we still have that. Um, that's good. That's good. No yeah. friction. And I guess that's something that was part of a, that was part of our intention to kind of like spread it around. It's like, okay, this just fucking works. Also, the video quality was was really good. I remember that back in the day we, we talked because you guys were struggling with uh, Angular. So, yeah. what was the first tech stack of the of the application? Um, Do you remember yeah. that? And so it was why Angular did you go for that? Node on the back end, and uh, oh, nice. We were on Amazon. Um, and we were lucky to be part of a bigger engineering team in the in this uh, digital unit of Telenor, which is kind of uh, the biggest telco in Norway. So we yeah. had access to really senior uh, engineers <laughs> from a very early stage. And I think that's actually one of the reasons that we succeeded in the market, because at the time, WebRTC uh, was quite new, the tech that we were yeah. using for the audio and video, which the browser gives you kind of out of the box a lot of the complex things around handling audio and video and setting up the connections between two parties. Um, but a lot of prototypes were built back then uh, using this technology. And uh, our use case is quite obvious, right? In terms of having a URL and everyone who goes to that ends up in a call. Um, but I think what set us apart was we actually started building out a global infrastructure and put a lot of work into making it Connections always work on any network, anywhere in the world, on any browser. So from day one, we also heavily invested in supporting all of the browsers, not just Chrome, which was kind of the simple yeah. thing to do, um, but Firefox, Opera. And this has been like a really long journey on working with the pushing the browser providers as well to add support for everything we need to work on bugs. So when we started, the tech was quite immature and not really business grade. Um, because it was, uh, yeah, a lot of bugs, which you uh, maybe you guys as early adopters are okay with. But once you get to businesses uh, and, and running like really business critical sales calls and stuff, you really can't have that. So that didn't really come about, I think, until maybe like 2016, 2017. And that's also when we started monetizing and building out um, paid um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. I remember that, you know, 2014, we were excited when we discovered every new company using Angular, right? Because that must have been the time around when 
um, there was we started using Angular two, so Angular, not Angular JS, uh, around that time. And towards the end of 2014, beginning of 2015, it was a lot of like breaking changes and whatnot. There was not retro compatibility. The beginning of TypeScript, so we were super excited about like, oh, this company is using Angular. They are they are our friends, you know. <laughs> so that's why we probably would reach out because of that. I think yeah. we got a lot of developer cred for the early version uh, by doing that because it was really hot at the time. So we had the interns uh, at the end of the summer, like they, and that's how we launched. We wrote out they wrote up a um, post on our developer blog yeah. about all tech and Angular, Node, and so on, and had a demo and linked to the product. And we posted that on Hacker News, <laughs> and overnight yeah. we got like a couple of thousand people checking out the product and uh, writing us and loving it and spreading it, and we got like the biggest tech news site in Norway. Uh, oh, nice. Our, uh, CEO of our like our unit company and was like, "Oh, this is really cool," and he had no clue <laughs> that we had actually launched something. Um, but it all okay. turned out uh, good, so. Yeah, 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 and and Node Node was was also in the early, I mean, early stages. Yeah. It was not that popular back then. Like people yeah. using Angular would have Java and the backend, and not Node. Well, why did you why did you choose? Now, do you remember the, why did you choose these particular technologies? Why did Honestly, you want to go I, for so groundbreaking things? I, I don't remember, but I think it was probably because the interns <laughs> wanted to play around with this cool new tech. Um, watertight plan <laughs> yeah, the kind of unit that we were inside was also like a java shop so we were kind of the kids playing around with javascript at the time but now going on from that like whereby is really kind of a javascript um, yeah shop. We stuck with node but then we did this big migration in uh, 2019 um, where we built out um, a small project that we had started as a progressive web app in react and we actually ended up building that out to be the full app um, and being responsive to all um, screen sizes as well. And this also coincided with us having to rebrand the entire product due to a, a trademark lawsuit. Oh, wow. I didn't know that part of the story. Let, let's go into that then. Um, I, I mean, I want to, I mean, to whatever extent you can explain, right? I'm, I'm also particularly interested in why did you rewrite? Because that's something that you usually don't see. Startups don't have the time nor the money to rewrite. And it's kind of like you're, you're always aiming for growth, 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 and, and you cannot stop. And so rewriting is really, really expensive, right? But yeah. first off, so rebranding, how did that happen? And yeah, why? No, what technical long, implications did it have besides it was their long and painful process on the legal side that took a lot of energy from us as management having to deal with it? Like we, shielded the team from most of it but sure. so basically when when we picked the name up here and it was also like during that summer of the intern so it wasn't really a lot of work that went into it and uh from that time uh and as when we grew there was another player in norway or another company that was able to acquire the trademark rights to the okay. trademark appear for norway and eu um, so I think they were originally owned by another company that went back bankrupt and yeah, a lot of complications, but, um, but they basically, uh, wanted us to stop using it and then we refused. So we actually went all the way to Supreme court in wow. Norway, um, on, on a small part of it, but eventually we, we had to stop using the name. So then we had to go through the process of finding a new name and more difficult domain, and we had millions of users, right, who had vanity URLs on. Yeah, yeah. that must have been painful, though. It like, was. But in the end, it actually came out really well, I would say. You? So we found a name. We actually had uh, a naming company work with us on a creative process on uh, on finding a name that would fit, kind of because we were a global company. The URL was really important, so it had to be fairly short. Um, yeah. And we wanted something that was indicative of our vision and the mission of the company. So we had two candidates, <laughs> two names okay. that we were working with. And then we went into uh, trademark screening, like making sure there were no other conflicts with these names and then domains, because like that can be a big issue. Um, and we were super lucky. So for whereby, the whereby.com was actually available for not that much money compared to the other names. So that- What was the other name? What was the oh, other name? Yes. I'm curious. <laughs> Is it a terrible name or is it just like you, you, you didn't want to pay that much? 
No, it was it was actually I think we made the decision even before with the domain, but it was okay. something that was uh, uh, had work in the name. And mm. one of the things that we talked about with our design agency that we worked with on on the brand identity was like. We don't really want people to be reminded that they're working every time they go in the product. That's a good point. Yeah. And uh, there's a lot of kind of use cases that are, are in the gray zone. Is it work? Is it not? Like you and me catching up, is that work or is it uh, just professional yeah. networking or pleasant? Um, networking has got the work inside. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. But, but um, and, I, and I think the way that we saw uh, work. Uh, and society moving as well with kind of more gig economy, more creative work, less being in the office from eight to four. It made sense to have something that was a little bit, um, not more fluffy, but like a little bit more open and people could kind of fill it with whatever they um, wanted it to be. So then um, to come back to the process, we we had a quite tight deadline to actually migrate all of the users over to the new domain. And um, obviously a huge comms challenge on getting everyone informed that this is actually happening. Yeah. This is the time frame. So the way we did it was to run both domains in, in um, parallel for a while. And you could go to your vanity URL and both of them would work, both the new and the old domain. And we would redirect people to the new domain eventually and then we turned off the old one at the deadline what what technical implications did it have like this this brand this rebranding process right i assume that i mean because you're not storing a lot of data because everything that you do is kind of like streaming video right um and so not a lot of data to migrate there's urls are relatively easy to migrate seo might might have been a challenge maybe if if not if not done properly so what we was the CMO at the time? It was also handling that. So when okay. he evaluated it, it was the minute impact was actually minimal. Um, okay. So he did some tactics <laughs> to kind of root um, all the value um, to the new new domain, and I think it took a couple of months before it was back to where it was. Yeah, in every in every SEO in every migration, there's always like what they call an SEO drop. So it's pretty usual, but you bounce back in 15 days, something like that, and yeah. most people actually bounce back to places they had never been before in terms of like being yeah. higher, ranking higher. So it's good. It happened to yeah. also to you. Okay. Um, what, what? Let's talk about the rewriting process because I think it's pretty pretty interesting. How did a, a startup uh, have the time and the means to invest in this kind of thing? Like how long did it take and what was, did you suffer from a lot of technical depth? What was the main reason to rewrite the app? I think the main reason was, so the Angular uh, project was getting increasingly complicated and difficult to work with. So we saw that things were taking a long time for developers. It was really cumbersome. They hated working with it and also bugs appearing. Because um, React was cooler, right? React yeah, was all, all the, yeah, it was all the rage in 2019. But, uh, so, yeah. but, I, but I think the kind of developer productivity was probably the main reason. Okay. Um, and also we saw that we would, regardless of the framework, we would have to rewrite a lot of stuff anyway to get kind of the responsiveness that we wanted. And also now with the new branding, we would have to kind of rewrite the entire design of the site. Um, so we made the decision then once we knew we had to rebrand, we said, okay, now we're going to put all dev efforts into basically handling the domain change process and making this new um, React project the main front end. Um, So we spent around eight months, I think, from we made that decision to going live. Um, So then uh, we worked on on rebuilding all of the functionality that we wanted in the new thing. Also the back end or only front? Um, Only the front end, I think. Only the front end, yeah. Okay, yeah, makes sense. uh, And then we had some interesting things around WebRTC. Uh, and maybe some of the logic that was deeply hidden somewhere. And we had yeah. some customers, uh, I think especially one in India, that they refused to give up the Angular client because they they thought it was working better for them on connectivity uh, and in some corner case. And okay. a lot of time like trying to figure out why is that actually. Um, so I think that was probably the, the, the trickiest part. Um, but I think that, you know, in, in your kind of software, at least, the, you know, uh, talking about whereby, uh, is a self-service software, so no installation needed. You can, like, set it up yourself. 
And the good thing about this kind of software is you got thousands or millions of users and each one is super, super small. It's the tiny fraction of your business. Therefore, you don't have to compromise the direction of where you want to go because these customers, 35% of our revenue, which might happen in enterprise, right? However, how did you, how was your approach to keeping all the clients satisfied? Because obviously you don't scale, you don't have the bandwidth to, or you didn't have the bandwidth to appease a a thousand million users. I don't know how many users you had back in the day. Yeah, we had some interesting principles that we we ingrained in our culture from very early on. Um, so, and one of them was this phrase, you don't have users before you have thousands. And it basically says that you need to sacrifice or make some of the early users unhappy to get to the mass market. And then we okay. got to thousands and we had to change it to millions. Uh, so I think this mindset of always keeping... Uh, your eyes on what's in front of you and adapting the product to the mass market users um, if that's where you want to get to. So I think we were a very traditional, like following the adoption curve product because mm-hmm. we started with like really innovators, which was basically developers who cared a lot about um, yeah. privacy security. We were peer to peer, no friction. Um, but you had to be a little bit techy to actually understand the product. I think in, in the very beginning, it was so frictionless that people didn't understand what was happening. So when we did user testing, we actually uncovered like people get scared because they they just click the link and boom, they're in the conversation. Yeah, exactly. It was like, oh, is this only working for me? Where do I go to the room? It's like, no, no, yeah. it's right. this is the room, right? Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Maybe like tie, do a typo. Right on. Someone else's room. So we actually had to introduce more friction when we saw that the product started reaching a broader uh, set of users, like people working in sales, marketing, customer service, and so on, um, to help them kind of deal with and understand what was happening. Uh, and also, also for security concerns, right? That uh, we introduced the ability to lock rooms. So you would have to knock. Um, yeah. And, and avoid people dropping into others' rooms. Uh, and also then uh, at some point we had to introduce um, registration to create and own rooms. In the first version, you could only do that. You could just type something and it would be created on the fly. Yeah, I remember so that. That's, yeah. that's the kind of stuff that like pisses off the early adopters when you do that. But if you yeah. don't, you're not going to grow. Because or, or the nerds like me, right? That we're just writing yeah. like random names and stuff like that. Oh, this works, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think the way to go, which I hope we've succeeded on somehow, is is also developing other stuff that will keep the early adopters happy and really kind of understanding uh, what they need to do with the product and and building that out for them. Um, do, you, do you find there was a, like a different strategy from say one to uh, like a, a thousand users uh, and then from a thousand to 10,000, like, or maybe when you approach the corporations, maybe starting getting some adoption in the, in the corporate sector, maybe that, did that yeah. influence the strategy of product at all? Yeah, I think so. Um, and I especially recall like uh, one of the first uh, product managers we brought on board. Um, that was not me. <laughs> well, uh, he was a designer, so he came from a design background and was not particularly techy. And mm-hmm. having him kind of design out like how these things needed to look was instrumental, I would say, in making that transition. But I think it really, especially when you start monetizing, because um, then you need to convince people that, oh, everyone on your team will actually know how to use this. And, um, and uh, we did a lot of work in advance of making our premium offering, the first one on like, what features do you need? Uh, what do we need to put into this premium offering for it to be interesting for you? Um, so then we built out things like custom logo and um, having company branding on it. Yeah. Also quite unique, or it still is actually. <laughs> I think we're the only service that really lets you brand the in-room experience. Um, I think yeah. that, that every company or every startup that doing B2C sooner or later realizes that B2B is where the money is at, right? Yeah. So how long did it take you to kind of like start exploring B2B? Um, so I think we started in 2016, uh, okay. early or a little bit before that. Um, and it was also like uh, part of the company journey, like realizing that we would have to sustain ourselves as a team um, and, and not rely on funding from our rich uncle um anymore uh so then we um and then we actually right after we had launched the first premium product we actually spun out as a separate company and got new owners 
And then we went into a phase of kind of aggressively bootstrapping and trying to grow revenues in the short term. So then we had to switch from being like really focused on building out a very scalable uh, global product and not caring so much about their revenue to really focusing on revenue and churn and analyzing why are people leaving? uh, How should we change our pricing? uh, How do we uh, map to competition in the choice that people are making, what are the different segments that are buying, all that kind of stuff. And what what did what did you compromise in this change? Because that same that change seems particularly radical to me, right? So you you go from fundraising and optimizing for growth, and then all of a sudden it seems to be like overnight you go to uh, to optimize for revenue and start bootstrapping and whatnot. You might have had to change teams, maybe reduce team of marketing, increase sales, or Change product yeah. strategy, change development. What 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 did you have to compromise there? Um, so we turned over the team, I think, two times in this process. Mm-hmm. One time before this, uh, which was more for natural reasons, um, and then a second time after we spun out. Uh, and I think a process like that involves a lot of changes for people, a lot of uncertainty. Um, And as part of the bootstrapping, we also had to go through a process of renegotiating contracts, have a temporary cut in salaries, uh, things like that, that for some people, it just, the sum of everything doesn't really work out. Um, But I think the way we have approached and gotten through those turnovers is basically using them as an occasion to realign our needs in the team and go after the kind of competence that we see that we need. So usually we have been able to get more senior people in with the experience that we need going forward. Um, And I think that's maybe my best advice in terms of hiring and scaling a company is be really specific on what your needs are going to be for the next six to 12 months and hire for that. Um, Because you don't know if you're going to get beyond that. So if you hire someone who's, more senior than you really need or can afford, you may not get used for them because you need someone who can deal with what you're in the middle of right now. Um, yeah, but let me challenge you on that. Like you usually don't know where you will be in 12 months because you might not even be there or yeah. you might be in a completely different place as a startup because you pivot, you change sectors, you change markets, you go to B2C to, from uh, from B2B or vice versa. So um, I don't know. Like for me, that's one of the... That would have been one particular talent if I had been in a startup or a a fundraising company, right? Being in a bootstrap place, it's kind of like you know where you're going to be in twelve months, more or less the same exact place with one or two people more. But um, that's not in the case of a startup. So, what? How did you actually convince people to to join in a in a company that was, you know, assuming you were scaling up, right? Assuming that you were more like scale up, not so much startup. You got product figured out. Still, you were pivoting a little bit, but you were kind of like more finding the business model, not so much the product. The product was already had already product market fit. Yeah, I think the the, the challenging thing about that is product market fit can change, uh, which yeah. happened for us later, uh, and we had to pivot, which we can get back to. But yeah. um, but I think in general for hiring, we try to find people who are a good match for the culture uh, and and really align with the vision. So some of the best hires we've made have been people who've come to us uh, because they love the product and they see that we have broken roles and, and want to join. So they're already subscribed to the vision. Um, and if they're a match with the culture, that as well. Um, and who can also bring something to the culture uh, that goes in the direction we want it. Um, uh, what's the, what was the... Um the the strategy in hiring developers because you, from the get go you were very open you mentioned you had a blog you were reaching out to developers you ha- you were friendly with companies that were using it and so because uh, you know that word of mouth kind of like spread there I don't know if you did open source now what was your strategy for hiring specifically hiring developers yeah so we've um, I think we always kind of have been very open in our communication on both media, newsletter, everything, um, blog. Uh, That was quite early on, the developer blog. But I think we also um, have engaged in the developer community. Like we had a conference budget. Everyone could go to a conference once a year um, and work closely with Mozilla, for example. Nice. Had some presence out there and had a quite good reputation from early on. So I think having a little bit of tech cred is quite important. Um, but also, uh, 
we kept a really kind of high bar on developers and involved the whole dev team in hiring. So doing technical interviews with several people in the team and uh, the CTO um, or engineering manager, um, because I think great people want to work with other great people. And that's especially true for developers. So we'd rather wait. If there was any doubt among anyone, uh, we'd say no, uh, which is very hard sometimes because some people like someone, whereas others have like a bad gut feeling. And we try to listen to that gut feeling. Um, okay. But yeah, you all yeah. have to also balance and make sure it's not bias, uh, especially if you try to have a more diverse team and have candidates that are not like the people you have. You need you really need like procedures. So we had quite strict procedures in terms of written feedback. Everyone writing their feedback, putting a score in a Google Doc before we shared uh, and had a debrief session where everyone would talk through um, their feedback. Okay. Okay. Um, now, now that you brought it up, specifically speaking about diversity, right? How did you, how did you tackle this challenge in society? Especially, I mean, to my understanding, from a complete like I've only been to Norway like three, four times, but that doesn't, it doesn't seem to be the most diverse country <laughs> in terms of certain things, right? Um, yeah. So, and I don't have the most diverse company. Granted, that's something that we're actually uh, looking to improve. But how did you, how did you tackle this uh, back yeah, so in the day? We didn't really tackle it, or we we started having it in terms of locations. So we opened up for remote. Um, okay. hires at that point. Uh, one of our best developers moved, wanted to move back to Nor from to Spain, from Norway. Um, oh, nice. So we set that up. Um, so our processes and team were kind of set up and everyone could work from home. So I think having that is a really good basis, actually, because then you can start hiring outside of your own country to, um, to have access to a much bigger pool of candidates. Um, but I think uh, when we started scaling up in Whereby from summer 2020, when we got venture funding um, and a really amazing VP of people, we yeah. uh, went through everything around our hiring process, interview process, job ads, how we write them, include information specifically that we kind of value diversity and, and it's a core uh, criteria for making a good global product, right? Yeah. Do you have that that having somebody up? Oh, sorry, I broke you off. I, I thought well, our dev team now and whereby I think is much more diverse than it was uh, before. Yeah. But now all of the hiring we did through COVID was fully remote. So yeah, that was a game changer. Most of the people that, that I worked with then. That's a good point. Remote allows for more diversity just because it allows also for, for people, not so much from, you know, the ethnic diversity and whatnot, but like different backgrounds, people from rural backgrounds, not living in yeah. big cities that maybe they wouldn't have had access to this kind of jobs. And now they have just because maybe they kind of relocate to big cities because they have to take care of the family or, you know, kind of like the house or whatnot. And, and now they can do both things and while okay. working remotely. Right. Yeah. My, my other question for you was like, do you think that having, like, having specifically you, like a woman in the, in the leadership team, in the technical part, which is something that is very rare in the industry, help you to 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 improve the the diversity um, number or to bridge the gender gap in in the company as well? Because that's something that we sometimes get like, oh, we would like to work for this company, but like you're three dudes running the company. It's like, well, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I hope so. Uh, I can't say I'm sure that it made a difference, but um, but I think maybe also having a female founder. Um, yeah. Is, is not that common. Um, and that's, I think that's maybe how I've been most visible. Like our marketing team was like posting all these articles about my tips for remote working and, and so on. So all of those signals like go out in the market um, and kind of build up the product profile as well. Yeah, because being the founder is, is like, you know, you, you can have people, you can have a more diverse team in the, in the, in the C-level if you yeah. hire them. But yeah. you cannot change the founders of the company, right? You can. It's not like you, we can bring another founder to the company eight years into the company. But yeah. yeah. Anyways, I, yeah. Now so. for my new job, that was actually also a big or something I thought was really cool. And when I met Kimberly, our founder and CEO, yeah. Now I was like, yes, I'd like to help you on your mission. Exactly, uh, and that's something that most people are like, you know, uh, most people think that developers are purely incentivized by their salary, which I think it's. 
it's bollocks because there are so many things like there are so many things as to how many people are there, right? And some people can work for salary, some people can work for the joy of working, some people can work because they want to learn technologies. And what we find is that a lot of developers just want to learn from somebody. They just choose their bosses, right? Yeah, exactly. And so in that case, maybe people wanted to learn from you as the as the CTO of the company, right? So that's that's something that I don't know, just wanted to mention. Yeah. But I wanted to oh, kind of like circle, but I sorry, go ahead. No, I just want to say that Kimberly, our CEO, is really concerned with this. So she said to us now, like, your next yeah. hire in product and engineering, it can't be a male. <laughs> so you really need to go look for it. So yeah. Any <laughs> uh, senior backend engineers out there, get in touch with me. <laughs> It will, yeah, yeah, of course, of course. And uh, we, we, we're going to plug this thing in, in, into the, the very end of the episode. But yeah, of course. I mean, if there's, uh, there's always a chance to kind of like improve and uh, to, to bridge the gender gap is when you create the company, right? I always mentioned that when a, uh, our first hire at Mars Space should have been a, a woman, but she turned us down last minute, the first developer, because she wanted to go for a PhD. And I think that would kind of like would have changed the, the company because I was like, oh, you got only one developer is a woman. And then we ended up, hiring a bunch of guys instead, right? But uh, I, you never know. Maybe the other parallel universes, it's like that, but uh, I can only... I think at I, least we need to make the effort so that correct. the that we have, the people we interview should yeah. have representation, not just on gender, but also kind of background and uh, yeah. uh, education and, and so on. But uh, if you don't have that, you're never going to have diversity in the company in general. Absolutely, absolutely, and and especially because I think that it, another thing that maybe I might be biased here on is that you know it in certain countries it's much easier to have the, this this amount of diversity because the the maybe the immigration has been maybe uh, more how to say like more. Um, integrated into society and therefore they are in higher ranks. Like maybe in the UK particularly, I think it's it might be easier to have more uh, representation of certain ethnic groups because they have been for so long integrated into higher levels of society that maybe doesn't happen in other countries. And therefore these countries are kind of like pushing their agenda onto us, which I think it's fine because we got to change. But it will take a little bit more time, just chill. <laughs> but anyways, and also one thing that, you know, um, for us, particularly speaking on Mars Space, one of the things I wanted to also commit to change, of course, gender gap is like super important, but in our case, it's like people with no university degree, right? Because most of them, they are always left out. And I remember I do have a university degree, my co-founders have, but like, I remember like some of my friends being discriminated yeah. uh, when they were looking for jobs because they didn't have any, they were way better programmers than I was, right? Okay. And we said like, you know, we're going to create a company, not going to take a look at any kind of formal yeah, education, right? And I think to my understanding, coming from a working class background, that's also diversity as well. But anyways. Yeah. I think some of the best developers I've worked with have been self-taught. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I can recall that back in the day, we hired a pianist that wanted to become a developer. One guy working in construction, working, turn into a developer. He's a freelancer now for us. And we've got a philosopher. We've got a librarian. So it's like nobody is really a developer except for me, and which I don't develop anymore. <laughs> That's great. That's how you get a great product with different perspectives and ideas coming from different places. And you keep the company very organized if you have a librarian. <laughs> anyway, circling back to the pivoting that you mentioned, because we're going to go into the, the second block of the interviews. I, I assume that pivoting came when the pandemic struck. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember that you mentioned in, the, in our previous conversation that everybody flocked to freaking corporate versions of your yeah. product just because maybe they wanted to play it safe or maybe the corporations were like, okay, we're not going to use Whereby because it's not Cisco, HP, or IBM, right? Nobody what happened fired. there? Nobody gets fired for buying Microsoft. So Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or IBM. I, I've, I, I totally get it. Yeah. But everyone had to get a video conference solution in place. They had to have something overnight. You go to the ones you have a relationship with, right? Whether it's Google or Microsoft. And, and it becomes harder for even if people in the organization and the teams loved using Whereby, like they got this these solutions mandated from, from the IT department, basically, for bigger companies. So I think the, the core of our user base wasn't that much affected like agencies like you guys. Um, but we, we um, throughout the, the, towards the end, if 
if we're still there, maybe we're not. But, uh, I don't know anymore. I just, I've given up. <laughs> uh, of the pandemic, we saw that it was really hard to get growth on, on the self-store product. But so what happened was we had a, a, an MVP of an embedded product, which you can basically integrate into other um, products. So if you wanted video calling in your app or product, uh, we had a set of APIs that you could just embed. And I think the nice thing was it was a higher level uh, kind of experience than a lot of the other API providers where you have to kind of code everything yourself. So with us, you got basically the room experience stripped down a little bit. Um, so it was the battle-tested design that we constantly iterate on and you don't really have to do that part yourself. And I think in uh, in the start of the pandemic, we got like 900 leads in two weeks because so many wow. businesses had to move their business online overnight, had to keep communicating with their clients and continue offering their services, be it like piano teachers or therapists or healthcare. One of our biggest customers was a startup called Accurex in, in the UK that was a sub-vendor to the NHS and was delivering nice. kind of the booking solution uh, that uh, doctors were making appointments with, with clients on. So they got in touch on Friday afternoon and by Monday morning, they started rolling out video calling to three and a half thousand doctors in the UK using our APIs. So, yeah, healthcare throughout the pandemic was. But how many of these wanted to actually pay? Because everybody wanted a tool, but nobody really wanted to pay back well, then. Well, I think they did at least these kind of like serious use cases um, yeah. and, and bigger companies. So I think a lot of our revenue growth through the pandemic actually came from that product and it grew to be... Um, almost half of our revenue. Um, so then uh, that's where we are right now. Uh, and it's kind of a nice symbiosis because most of the other API providers also, they don't kind of use their own <laughs> APIs, whereas we do. And we constantly iterate on the user experience and have millions of users using that self-service product overnight. And then we kind of develop the APIs to handle that. Um, and you can test and feel what it looks like without integrating it. So we've now kind of applied all of the self-service logic that we're used to on, on that embedded customer journey as well. Which is which is funny, right? Because a lot, like pretty much everybody moved desperately towards the online and, and remote and virtual and whatnot. But progressively, a lot of people, maybe most of the people wanted to go back to the office, right? So that's what we're seeing in the stock market right now is like tech was overinflated, overhyped, and, and now we're paying... <laughs> for yeah. these overvaluations. But um, maybe in the case of certain companies, they grew too much. We've seen it in some companies in Barcelona that, you know, they profited a lot from, from the growth in 2020. They were like, yeah, we survived the pandemic. We even grew and whatever. And like that now they're taping the shit because they, obviously that was not sustainable growth. And uh, a lot of the revenue disappeared overnight uh, when restrictions were lifted and whatnot, which is exactly the contrary, the opposite of what happened to companies that they were relying on offline traffic and like hotels and restaurants and whatnot that overnight they lost the traffic, right? So in a sense, it's got like, oh, maybe you you have beaten more that you can chew, but uh, I I don't know. Like, uh, I hope that the company is still doing well and, uh, and that B2B, that probably that, that switch to B2B has been um, paramount to keeping the company alive and well. I think we're in uh, or we're always in lucky place because we had quite a high level of revenue uh, already. Um, so not that um, dependent on funding. Whereas a lot of nice. um, what we're seeing in the market or hearing in the market is a lot of early stage startups are struggling if they haven't reached the point where you have some revenues yet. Um, and, and then it's increasingly hard to fundraise, I think, in these times. Yeah. Is it already a profitable business or, or not yet? Uh, it depends how you uh, adjust. It depends how many people you fire, right? Yeah. <laughs> Every company is profitable provided you fire the right amount of people. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but it's uh, right now it's kind of at a stable level where we can nice. serve customers in a really good way and uh, and kind of go back to like having a little bit of a slow and steady growth. Yeah. I mean, the reason I was asking is because uh, um, it seems that whenever we interview bootstrap companies over here, of course, as being a bootstrap company, maybe we, we have this community, they get better numbers in the listening episode. But anyways, it will take them 40 minutes to reach this point. So by now, they, they should have listened to the episode. Yeah. But I think that maybe it's a good way that not a lot of podcasts talk about 
profitable or bootstrap businesses because most of them are like growth, investment, and product and startups and whatnot. It's like, uh, maybe I have to bridge this gap of maybe uh, the companies that will survive the pandemic and economic recession downturns and whatnot are those that are profitable, sales-oriented, and like cash-effective, right? So I don't know, props to you for going that way. Yeah. Going to an investor garden party later, so I'll get the latest intel. But I think there is still funding for good companies out there. Yeah, and, uh, it's just uh, a much more narrow. Yeah, um, yeah, of course. I think like the mo- the word out there is it's going to take twice the effort to raise healthy amount, right? Yeah, and especially right. people will not invest in growth; they will invest in in cash management and whatnot. Yeah. I wanted to dedicate a few minutes to talk about Indie Riot, right? Because you moved on from whereby. Uh, assuming that you 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 keep a board on the seat or advisory role, something like that, because uh, you know as a founder, yes. that's something that is hard to let go. But talk a little bit about Indie Riot and uh, why. What are you bringing from Whereby into Indie yeah. Riot? Well, I think all of the learning that I've talked through definitely. So, I think um, Whereby got to the point where um, it was quite a mature product. And I realized uh, when managing kind of so many people, both product and, and engineering, uh, I, I got very distant from the product. And and I kind of wanted back to a little bit of the chaos of, uh, of an early start yeah. stage. And also as a founder, you really need to be the driving force on the vision and ideas and so on. And we had so many great people coming in and especially our, our new CPTO at Whereby, Andy, who came from Amazon in the UK. He... Um, took over my role in a great way. And I really felt it was the right time um, to let the new ideas flow. So I felt a need to work on something new, like completely new. Um, and I got really compelled by the vision of Indie Ride, which is to uh, give companies the power to build their own community and not be reliant on, on building on the tech giants platform. So what we're doing is basically building a white label platform and a set of APIs that companies can use to build out their uh, community on. Um, so handling user profiles, um, content storage and um, custom data, um, what you want to know about your customers and have recommendations about content and people for them matching their the people's interests out of the box, which is quite heavy, heavy lifting if you want to build it yourself. And a lot of the kind of no-code website building tools today are very front-end focused. So we're looking to um, combine some of that with the back-end that you would need to build a really great community site. So we're still in an early phase. So looking for really cool pilot customers to work with. Um, and um, yeah, so if anyone is interested in that, reach out. I really think that community building is kind of the next uh, trend in marketing, I guess, uh, of companies or there being a yeah. separation between the companies who work really closely with their users or their customers and kind of have a feedback loop with them and uh and have a thriving community be a part of the product. So one of our companies now, it's a hardware company actually, and they have a vision of uh, building up a community for knowledge sharing among their customers as something you get with the sort of subscription to the hardware. Yeah, and I think that, you know, yeah, you, I can see that this product is going to be definitely successful for two things. One of them is you were really good at community at a peer and whereby, right? So that's something that that knowledge is going to be uh, paramount to the success of Indie Riot. And the second is, um, I've been in the community space for so many years now, I can't remember, but there's never been an all-in-one platform, right? So whenever, because there's never been such a big uh, mass of uh, of potential customers or big necessity for for a community, whereas now it's so big that maybe it makes sense to kind of like bundle everything together and have like a review and meetup and Eventbrite and whatnot, everything that was separate, try to bundle it together. And there will come a time in which there will be one Google, one Amazon in this space, and we'll have to unbundle it, but it's way too lo- too yeah, far into it. the future right now, right? Yeah, and but, I think uh, it's almost like a new category. Uh, the bits and pieces are there, but I think we're uh, at the stage also where we have to simplify it so that the marketing team and the community managers can do all their stuff in one place and not have to have this patchwork. But exactly. that's also a, bar, a big part of our vision is kind of how we can integrate uh, with other tools and systems. So we can't build everything ourselves, but uh, but uh, focusing on making a great workflow for the customers that are community managers. Or- what is your vision for community? 
specifically talking about tech companies? Um, so Where I think going? our overall vision is, is unlocking human potential through communities because we see the power that is there when people kind of align around a shared uh, purpose and, and can put their energy into making something happen. Um, so, so really giving them the tools that they need, be it a, a tech company that needs to scale their product or um, we have another customer that we're talking to in education that wants to build a student community because they see that most of their students will be off campus in the future, sitting yeah. in places and the social aspect is really important for them to complete their studies. Um, so kind of uh, seeing these new business models emerge where community is a really central, uh, central part of it. Okay, one, the, the, the last big question here, and I want you to choose one of the two. I'm going to give you two options. You answer only one. You can answer, answer both of them, right? What is your biggest tech fuck-up that you've ever done at a peer slash whereby? Or what has been your most expensive fuck-up in the company? Oh, shouldn't give me this in advance. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. We got the best answers this way. Like, uh... <laughs> is there any, uh, like, you have to own up to it as something that you have done. Like, and if, it, if it's possible... Not things like I didn't hire the right person. You know, it's like yeah, everybody has done that. Like something, yeah. something more specific about your business. Like, mm. there's probably a lot of things in terms of rolling things out and exposing functionality before uh, it was really ready uh, or when it was too buggy, which I have been responsible for as a product uh, person. I mean, don't worry. It cannot be worse as like somebody in our first episodes who set his own office on fire, right? Oh, wow. Yes. <laughs> so, and the data center that like that was massive, <laughs> and now he's a VP at Amazon. So yeah. you learn know. from your mistakes, right? <laughs> so uh, I don't know. Like no, no, no pressure. Or like, or as I said, or something like you, you squander a lot of money on like you know buying an office where you shouldn't yeah. have, or like you know, like something. Something like that. Does anything come to mind? No, I will. Uh, I will let you know if I can think of anything. Oh, really, we'll record. Bad. We'll record yeah, part two. Sure. <laughs> yes. No worries. Okay, then. Then one minute for you. How can we help you? How can we help? Whereby and or in the riot? Use it. <laughs> I think that's. I. I I'm a big fan of independent tech solutions and the people who build them as well. So I think. Every company has a uh, has power uh, to purchase things from other companies, and uh, if more people were using their power to buy things from smaller companies like us uh, instead of Microsoft or Google, I think uh, I, I have a vision for a world that's not run by an oligarchy of tech companies, which is seems pretty far at the moment. But I think we just have to keep working and provide alternatives. Um, so um, yeah. Okay, yeah, and, I wholeheartedly that, subscribe uh, to that. So is that? More pilot customers for Indie Riot that, that wants to help us uh, explore this next generation. of. In of terms of talent, people. you mentioned senior engineers. Uh, what other roles are you hiring for? Uh, we're not doing too much hiring at the now, keeping the cash yeah. <laughs> in-house, but, uh, but we'd love to talk to anyone who's kind of building community or want to talk about the problems or challenges with that and... Uh, or who would like to work with us on, on building up a platform. Perfect. Yeah. And we'll, we'll have to talk. We'll have to talk because definitely I've got a lot of ideas coming from, you know, I know you're Brian. so we'll follow builder. up with that. <laughs> right. Ingrid, I want to thank you for your time. Let's wrap it up here. Thank you so much. And maybe you will have to tell me how to pronounce your surname because otherwise I will fuck it up so badly in the, <laughs> in the intro. Norwegian, so Norwegian version is Odegaard. Uh, okay. The international question is Odegaard. <laughs> yeah, I assume there's always like that, right? Outside of your country and inside of your country. Thank you very much, Ingrid. Have a nice day. And everybody, just uh, see you in the next episode. Yeah, great to chat, Alex.